So I'd like to begin tonight's talk with a story about what is sometimes called the dark night of the soul. And this is, uh, was an elderly friend of mine who's a respected rabbi, told me that as a younger man he had had a debilitating depression. This was a conversation some years back. But it was hard for me to imagine, because this is a social activist with amazing passion and joie de vivre. And, but as a younger man, he said he was a prisoner of his mind and that he felt in some way cut off from real life, that he was here but not so here. He just Tragedies would happen and he'd feel a sense of, oh, that's awful, but his body wouldn't feel it, his heart wouldn't feel it. And he, he got a sense that beauty and love, and he was he was a little cauterized, one step removed. And most painful was that he felt self-doubt as a religious leader and self-doubt as, you know, a father and a husband and, and, and doubt in terms of his relationship with God. So that was what was most crushing. So he told me about that and he told me that one evening he was driving home uh, in rush hour and a car hit him from behind and he had some pretty bad injuries and landed up in the hospital for a few days. And one night, in the middle of the night, he was lying awake because it's sometimes hard to sleep in hospitals. And uh, he heard an inner voice, and the inner voice said, I'm not at home. And he had this realization that he was never at home. No matter what he was doing, he never really felt at home, whether he was engaged with his children are at social gatherings or leading a service, you know, speaking to people or writing. It's like he never really felt at home. There was always some sense that he should be somewhere else. He should be different. He should be something more. And in the deepest way, he never felt at home with God. He never felt a sense of oneness with his beloved. Now, when he described that, immediately it resonated that the language not at home Um, I've known so many people that in some way when they're telling me about their suffering, that's the suffering they're describing. The sense of uh, with other people feeling in some way not belonging, invisible, not understood, or down on oneself, not at home in oneself, or people that are struggling with physical problems, not at home in my body. You know, I've heard it so much. And this describes what the Buddha called dukkha. And the word dukkha is sometimes described as suffering, but it, that's not maybe the most accurate word. It's this fundamental unease, not able to rest, really arrive right here. There's an uneasiness, an off-balancedness, that we're in some way disconnected. We're not inhabiting the currents of our life. And so sometimes dukkha, like for this friend of mine, this rabbi culminates in like the dark night of the soul where it's like wrenching suffering. And other times this not at home feeling is this undercurrent that's just pervasive and not so in our awareness. But there's a a sense of being in routines and somewhat preoccupied and never really... It's like this moment is not where we're arriving. We're on our way. Now, one of the biggest signs of not at home is doubt. It's not always conscious doubt, 
But when we're not at home, when we're not able to be at home in the moment or in our body or our hearts, there's a, a sense, that we're living in a kind of contracted sense of who we are. There's a tightness. And something in us intuits that, and we don't really trust ourselves. We don't trust the contracted self. So not at home often goes along with doubt. Some mistrust that something's wrong and it's wrong with me. Now, for this rabbi, that wake up in the hospital, the sense of I'm never at home, cracked open something. So he, he contacted this soul longing to discover what it really meant to be at home in his life. And that became his passion. And he, he told me that he said, he, and something in him said, no matter what it takes, it's not, I'm not living. I'm not in the currents of my life. No matter what it takes, this is, this, is my, this is my path to find this out. And so he began this kind of contemplative inquiry. And I think of him as really ahead of his time because what he was doing, he now could say, was mindfulness practice. But he would ask himself the kind of questions I sometimes ask you in here, which is, right this moment, what is between me and feeling at home? Right this moment, what is between me and feeling at home in this body? Am I here? What would it mean to be at home right now? You can ask yourself, what would it mean? What would the felt sense be of being at home? And what he found, as we explore here, is that homecoming has everything to do with paying attention to what's happening right here and not just noticing what's happening right here, but a kind of a softness that says yes to it. We can't be at home unless we're agreeing to the reality of this moment. Now, being at home doesn't mean that we're saying, oh, I'll never, I'll just be passive. I'll never do anything. Being at home means that we're inhabiting this moment fully without resistance our hearts saying yes to life, and which actually frees us to be very creative and proactive. So this was his meditation, and what he found was that, um, this is what he told me, he said, everything I was longing for, peace, happiness, the light of God, trust in myself, it was right here in this accepting presence. But he had to go through this process. What does it mean to be at home? So when we think, well, what draws us to mindfulness practice? What draws us to these kind of teachings? My sense is that on some level, every one of us wants to feel more at home. We want to trust who we are. We want to be able to be here fully. So I'd like to explore that tonight, this kind of reflection on homesickness. I often use the phrase that our Our real sickness is homesickness. On homesickness and doubt, how that turns into doubt, and then how do we find our way back again? And if we look at the genesis of doubt, because this is always interesting to me, you know, it's not like we were born with self-doubt. You know, that's not, you can kind of sense, it's not the the immediate response of a new infant in the world. In fact, we arrive in this world with some pre-verbal 
sense of belonging. You know, in the womb and when we're first born, there's this, there's a kind of resonant field, uh, and with the caregiver that you know of belonging, and so that the mind is designed to over time perceive separation. But if there's this fundamental sense of okay, part of the earth, part of this this experience in the womb, part of this love with caretaker, that belonging even when the normal ego stuff happens, can carry us with a sense of basic trust, like things are basically okay. And many people have that, but many people don't. And the reason we don't is because very early in life, for most of us, I'd say, there's a severing in belonging. That it might be, we might have a genetic disposition to anxiety, but also our caregivers have their own fears and their own wants and are not able to provide a really present and a field where there's a responsiveness to our needs. So there's a break in belonging there. And then we're born into a culture that doesn't really encourage belonging. There's not natural ways of belonging. Think about it. We have to prove ourselves every step of the way. And we have to be a certain way to belong to our family system. And we have to prove ourselves in schools for sure. And then at work we're trying to prove ourselves. And even in spiritual communities there's these unsaid rules about how one should be. So every step of the way we're given a message, a kind of set of criteria of how we should be. And there's a gap between that and just our sense of ourself from the inside. And so there's a sense of not belonging. We don't quite fit. Now what happens is that because we yearn for belonging, we go about trying to create a self that will make it in the world. And every one of us has been in some process of kind of constructing a self that will get accepted by others that'll be approved, that'll be appreciated. So we abandon ourselves. We abandon our our presence and our openness and our tenderness and our vulnerability in this self-construction process, which includes the defenses and the cover-ups and so on. We get really busy with it. Somebody sent me this. I was talking about this year ago and somebody sent me this story about a guy in a midlife crisis who decided he had to reinvent himself we we reinvent ourselves whenever we have a chance to move in a direction of what will be better how we'll make better impression in the world so this guy hits 45 his name's Thompson he decides to change his his whole lifestyle and appearance so he can uh, look better live longer so he goes on a strict diet jogs swims takes all these sun baths to get his color just right Just three months' time, he's lost 30 pounds, reduced his waist by six inches, expanded his chest by five inches, felt and tan, gets a new wardrobe, slick car, et cetera, et cetera, decides to top it all off with a sporty new haircut. Afterwards, while stepping out of the barber shop, he's hit by a bus. (laughs) As he lies dying, he cries out, God, how could you do this to me? And a voice from the heavens responds, to tell you the truth, Thompson, I didn't recognize you. So it's a, it's a silly story, but the truth. But here's the here's where it comes from, which is we go about we're trying to change ourselves all the time. We're trying to get better. 
Just watch. There's, a, there's an improvement project going on. And, and what happens is it stops us from recognizing who's here because we're so busy trying to be somebody. And um, the further we go, the more we try to, you know, we use our false refuges, what I talk about so often, to try to take care of and soothe our anxieties and be okay. So for this rabbi, his false refuge was his intellect. That's why he felt so cut off. He left home because he took refuge in his intellect to try to make it in the world. Now, each of us has our ways. How do we try to make it in the world, and how does it really take us further and further from home? I mean, for some of us, it's proving ourselves. You know, we just keep having to do more, try to accomplish more, to make it so that we're okay. We're trying, it's, it's our effort to be at home with ourselves. But our busyness never works. The more we speed up, it's like we're bicycling away from the present moment and away from who we are. Or as Lily Tomlin describes, she goes, the, the trouble with being in the rat race is that even if you win, you're still a rat, you know? So we have our false refuges. For many of us, it's obsessive thinking, trying to figure things out. The biggest false refuge is judgment. We judge ourselves, judge each other. It takes us from home. It is in some way a perfection project. When we doubt ourselves, and this is whenever we're feeling a sense of not at home and we're doubting ourselves, then what we, we have this assumption that if only I could be more perfect, then things would be all right. And, and that gets us in trouble, this perfection project, probably more than anything else. Some of you might remember the story of a reporter who asked the bank president, who's known and very well known in the business world, sir, what is the secret of your success? And uh, the response is two words. Well, what? Right decisions. And sir, how do you make the right decisions? One word. And what is that, sir? Experience. And sir, how do you get experience? Two words. And sir, what are they? Wrong decisions. (laughs) (laughs) So we learn by stumbling, and yet it's our biggest fear. We're really afraid of being wrong, of making mistakes. Um, So homesickness and self-doubt give rise to this perfection project. And and these are the words of, uh, in Psalm 101.2, I will walk the way of perfection. So it's very much in the Judeo-Christian heritage. And so here's a poem, Perfection, Perfection. I have had it with perfection. I've packed my bags. I'm out of here. Gone. As certain as rain will make you wet, perfection will do you in. Perfection straineth out the quality of mercy, withers rapture at its birth. I've handed in my notice, given back my keys, signed my severance check. I quit. Hints I could have taken. Even the perfect chiseled form of Michelangelo's radiant David squints. The Venus de Milo has no arms. The Liberty Bell is cracked. Okay, so this is, we're, we're kind of moving forward here. So we find out that our perfection project just turns us into a bundle of tight 
tense muscles. So how do we relate to it? How do we relate to the reality of non-perfection? Because this is the given. Every one of us is in this conditioned body that is going to grasp after pleasure, that's going to get greedy, that's going to get fearful, that's going to get possessive and defensive. How do we make peace with that? How do we come home in the face of non-perfection? I think it helps to know that um, for many, 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 many centuries in our particular culture, we've been given the message that in some way we got kicked out of home because of our non-perfection. Adam was but, but human, writes Mark Twain, This explains it all. He did not want the apple for the apple's sake. He wanted it only because it was forbidden. The mistake was in not forbidding the serpent, because then he would have eaten the serpent. (laughs) So, So you get it. So it goes way back that there's a sense of something's wrong and a sense of severed belonging. Okay, so the third Zen patriarch. This is one of the phrases that I have found most powerful describes the essence of spiritual freedom is being without anxiety about non-perfection. So non-perfection is given. How do we not add anxiety? Now let me ask you to try this out just for a moment, okay? Just close your eyes. And in a brief few moments, just review the reality of this body-mind person I call self is not perfect. Just whatever comes to mind about not perfect. Whatever expressions of ego or self stand out to you and remind you of non-perfection. Now, for just a few moments, sense the possibility of being without anxiety about this. That just is. That it's possible not to add what the Buddha called the second arrow of anxiety, of judgment. without anxiety about non-perfection. Sense that your wisest self could say, it's okay. This is just how it is. In fact, there's a tremendous joy and freedom in just letting it be okay. And maybe you can just for a few seconds let it be okay. But that's a glimmer of freedom. The portal to freedom is finding our way to be okay, to have that wisdom to be okay with this human predicament. Now you can open your eyes when you'd like. If you want to keep meditating, that's fine. 
But here's the, the inquiry. For some, you know, it might have been impossible. It might have felt there's non-perfection here and I'm completely uptight about it and it's not okay. And that's fine. Then you're just mindful of how much that is really grooved in there. That's the starting place, just to be aware of it. For others, you might have had a, a sense of, you know, I can notice all this and still be okay. And you know that often that's not the case. Often you do get very uptight about it. But it's possible, it's possible to just take the whole shebang and say, oh, it's okay. Now, what lets us have that glimmer? What lets us have that stance where we're not in the self-doubt? We're in the space that's just present, the witnessing, the mindfulness. What lets it be possible to be without anxiety this is, the, this is kind of the crux of everything here, is if we have an intuition or some sense of our basic goodness, of our belonging to something larger, of the awareness and love that's here. If we're in some way intuiting, that's what I really am. This awakeness, this tenderness, the one who's listening right now. If we can trust that that is more essential, this subjective truth of what we are, than the ego self we typically identify with, we can have more and more stretches of being without anxiety. We can begin to deconstruct the doubt. So what this means is beginning to sense and trust what Thomas Merton described as our secret beauty, this loving presence. And he called it our secret beauty because he recognized that we spend most of our moments identified with something smaller. In fact, the whole of the spiritual path is recognizing that we're identified with something smaller We're identified with an ego self with all its foibles. And the spiritual path is waking up to saying, yeah, this ego defenses all this is here. And that's not it. That's not all of it. The what I am is this presence. Is this luminosity? Is this love? So that's that's the pathway. And as we trust that larger sense of being, the doubt begins to dissolve. And there's an amazing freedom to move through our day and not have a kind of sense of doubt of, I'm not okay. Amazing energy that's freed up. And spontaneity. And most precious, when we're not caught in doubt, when we're not double-taking on this ego self, there's a kind of love that flows. Because we belong with each other in this earth. So the rest of this talk is really um, how to cultivate that trust, how to to sense that secret beauty and wake up out of the doubt. And we begin with the practice that we do here, the most central practice that we do here, which is we learn to come back and really open to the life of this moment. To the extent that you can start making yourself at home in exactly what's here, and this takes courage because we leave, we're more comfortable leaving, 
But if you can learn to make yourself at home in this moment, then you begin to discover the aliveness and vastness that's really the portal to our secret beauty. But you have to be here. In other words, we can't find our way to trust and belonging by thinking about it, by trying to perfect ourselves in some way, by judging ourselves. None of that does it. There's a relaxing into what's right here. Thoreau said that we really, our way is to dwell as near as possible to the channel in which your life flows. So even right now, can you just get a sense of kind of relaxing back into the life that's here? This breath, these feelings. Now the challenge of coming home to this aliveness right here, of this portal of presence, is that when we, at, when we say, okay, so what's between me and being present, what we find is there's a kind of edginess, a restlessness, a discomfort. There's something we don't want to hang out with. When my rabbi friend asked the question, you know, what's between me and being at home, what he found a lot was that he felt there wasn't enough time. He felt like he was supposed to be doing something else all the time. His self-doubt made him think he needed to do more. Well, what happens when we ask ourselves, well, what's between me and really this portal of being right here in this moment? And what we find is there is some quakiness or anxiety or shame or fear or something. And sometimes that energy that's difficult to be with gets really big. We really don't want to be here. And I'd like to use a a metaphor I found very powerful. If you look at the Tibetan tankas, the, the religious mandalas, pictures, or you look at the pictures of temples in Asia, what you'll often see is that guarding the entry to sacred space are animal-headed goddesses. And it's very, they're very dramatic. I mean, there's wrathful deities and there's jealous deities. And, you know, so there's this anger and then there's the fearful ones and there's the grasping, passionate, clutching ones. But they're all the different expressions of consciousness. And the teaching is, and this is a really powerful understanding, that the stuff we don't want to be with that is in every body-mind is exactly the energies that are part of the path, a part of the homecoming, that to get to sacred space, we need to encounter these energies within ourselves. It's not like they're in the way. It's not like we actually have a better spiritual experience if we can somehow or other bypass them and just have all peace and bliss and harmony. They're part of the equation. So I like this. I like this image of the the wrathful and the jealous and the, you know, angry, fearsome deities for a couple of reasons. And one is that um, it, it makes what is in every one of us natural and a part of the process. We don't make it wrong so much when we think of it that way. And secondly, they're deities. They're called deities. Now, why? 
Why would anger be called a deity? Why would fear be called a deity? And the reason is because it's all the same prana energy life spirit. It's just they have torques to them. And by being present with these energies, they are free to express their essence, which is alive and luminous, loving and beautiful. But we have to be with them. So one of my teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, when he was asked about, you know, strong emotions and how we get all entangled with them, he said they're the juice of the path. Okay, the stuff that we avoid, that we're running from, are the juice of the path. He said the deal is not to get empty and vacant, like no thoughts, nothing going on. The idea is to enter into these energies, open to them with wisdom, with presence, and then let their aliveness inform us. It's a warm, alive emptiness. So, example. This is example of homecoming. How do we come home into the moment? One man, his deity was rage, and his he basically, when others didn't cooperate with him, when he sensed criticism, when somebody didn't pay attention to him the way he wanted, uh, He'd, sometimes he'd lash out, but often he'd just seethe, you know, just really get torqued into knots. And, and so he had a lot of doubt about himself. He felt like a bad person, a violent person, and a non-spiritual person. And so we began to practice. Well, okay, so here's the deity. How do, we, how do we work with this? And so I had him do something I ask a lot of people, is to just sense, okay, how does this energy want you to be with it? How does it want you to be with it? And um, the response of the this, you know, ferocious, angry, rageful deity was um, to let it be there. Now, that didn't mean have him lash out. That didn't mean let him believe the stories that going on in his mind. There's a difference between believing your story that this person screwed me and letting the energy of anger, the heat and the pressure be there. Does that make sense? The difference there? The deity wanted the energy to be allowed to be there. Just let it be there. Well, that was a big deal. So he, so he started practicing. He, he thought of a situation that he was really, real, that was really just, he had a huge reaction to. You know, somebody that he felt was double-crossing him. So it was a big deal. Somebody he thought was talking behind his back. So he let the energy be big, and it, it got very explosive. And I, and I just encouraged him to keep letting it be as big as it wanted to be. And it just kind of like crashed through the windows and the doors. And I said, how big is it now? And he kind of, it's filling the Eastern Hemisphere, you know. And now it's spreading through the planet Earth. And, you know, now it's out to space and filling the galaxies. I mean, it got big, you know. And, but then, you know, I said, and now, and now. And he said, well... Now I'm feeling kind of an emptiness inside me. I said, okay, so pay attention to that. He said, well, it's a kind of a sorrow. It's, it's sad. It's like I'm all alone. I said, okay, so how does that energy want you to be with it? Same question. How do the deities want them, us to be with it? Kind, be kind. So he was just kind with that sadness. And gradually what emerged for him was this very big space of kindness, but it had a strong energy to it and had a kind of a stillness to it at the center. And he began to call it his still point. And 
he felt at home in it. You know, there was this kind of stillness and the steady energy that kind of was all around it, and he felt at home. How did he come home to sacred space? It's the energy of the deities. He was just with them. Now, for him, this isn't like a one-shot story. This is not a quick, happy ending. He had a lot of programming to be angry and to feel, you know, other people mistrustful and so on. Many, many rounds with the wrathful deity and then with underneath that, this loneliness. But the point is that the entry to sacred space, to coming home, is being exactly with what presents. Exactly with what presents. Whatever is going on in your life right now, that's the portal right here. So let's just we'll just take a moment with that one because I'm going to I'm naming two different gateways of homecoming that wake us up out of our doubts. It's just a short reflection to give you a taste. As we pause for this, invite yourself home. Just invite yourself to be right here. You might feel your breath. Feel your heart. And you might sense in your life right now if there's some situation that stops you, that gets in the way from feeling at home with things. Maybe something going on in a relationship or at work. Maybe something going on with your body that just makes it hard for you to really feel at home with life as it is. when you sense, well, what's between me and being at home? When you sense the situation, you might sense that there's some emotion that's there, some fear, some anger, some jealousy, some grief. So maybe one of the deities, one of these, they call the animal-headed goddesses, is, is there, that energy's there, that feels between you and homecoming, sacred space, restlessness, doubt, a not okay feeling. They're all expressions of these deities. And you might sense that. And with that, have some interest to sense, well, how does this energy want you to be with it? How does your anxiety want you to be with it? Your anger? Your hurt? Does it want acceptance? Does it want forgiveness? Does it want you just to allow it to be there, not to try to get rid of it? Does it want kindness? These deities 
usually are wanting some quality of presence. And you might notice what happens if you just offer what's needed. For some, it helps to put the hand on the heart or the cheek. It's just an offering of presence to whatever expression, whatever deity, whatever energy is here that might feel like it's between you and being at home. So if it helps to put your hand on your heart to, to bring more of a tenderness, that's, that can be good. And just sense an increasing presence that the more you're with this energy, the more just that being with itself, that presence itself carries you home. You might sense that even in a few moments there's a little more space, there's more kindness, more wisdom, You might find there's a still point, an alert inner stillness that's just bearing witness with kindness. So this is the first pathway of homecoming that where we are separate from ourselves, there's usually some energy that we're not wanting to be with. And our pathway is this kind of courage to say, okay, I'll be with what's here. Rather than reacting, we're willing to pause and bring a kind presence to these animal-headed goddesses, these energies. You might take a few breaths and then open your eyes when you'd like, and I'm going to share the second pathway of homecoming. These are the two wings that sometimes are described of presence. If the first pathway is just this be with it, just be with it, be with it with whatever energy it requires. The second pathway of homecoming is love. And the Buddha very famously talked about good friends, about loving relatedness as the whole of the holy life. And I often think, well, what did he mean? The whole of the holy life. And what he was pointing to is that when we recognize and feel our belonging with each other, with fellow creatures, with the natural world, when we feel that belonging, there is homecoming. There is a radical and profound shifting of identity where instead of this sense of the story of self, this separate being, there is a sense of belonging to an aliveness and field of loving presence that is freeing. So this this realizing who I am, this path of realizing who I am, as much as it's about being with what is within us, it's about exploring the what is between us. One friend last week reminded me, told me of a story actually, Swami Satchidananda, who's a wonderful Hindu yogi, many people got influenced by, and he was asked in an interview what the difference was between illness and wellness. Okay, So illness, he, as he, he describes, he says, illness, it's the difference between illness begins with I and wellness is we. It's the difference between I and we. 
And isn't it true that when we're in that self-centered tangle of just all this absorption and concern about me, 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 it doesn't feel good and we don't trust who's here. And when we're feeling we, when we're really feeling that sense of belonging to, whether it's belonging to nature when we're on a walk or belonging to our dog when we're cuddling with our dog or belonging to a friend, that sense of we is freeing. So a story I wanted to share. Um, I read a book, Tattoos on the Heart, by Gregory Boyle some time ago, and he describes these Latino gangs and incredible suffering in the Los Angeles area, violence and so on, and this they created this homeboys industry that really gave a chance for some of these teens to find jobs and find dignity, really. And so this is one story he found. One of the boys from the gang that he was working with, Anthony, says, I want to be a mechanic. Don't know nothing about cars, but really, I want to learn it. So Gregory Boyle had, a, had his own mechanic, a guy named Dennis, on Brooklyn Avenue, who is something of a legend in the barrio. And I'm going to read some. It says, Dennis could fix any car. A tall, polthin Japanese-American in his near 60s, Dennis was a chain smoker. He was not a man of few words. He was a man of no damn words at all. He just smoked. You'd bring your car in, he'd take the keys, and when you return the next day, he'd give you your car, purring as it should. No words were exchanged during this entire transaction. So I go to Dennis to plead my case. Look, Dennis, I say, sitting in his cramped office, truly a smoke-filled room. Hire this kid, Anthony. True enough, he doesn't know anything about cars, but he sure is eager, and I think he could learn this stuff. Dennis just stares at me, nodding slightly. I redouble my efforts. I tell Dennis that this won't just be one job for one homie, but it will create a ripple effect of peace in the entire neighborhood. Long drags of silence and a stony stare. I get out my shovel and my top hat and cane. Noble Peace Prize will alter the course of history. Will change world as we know it. Nothing. Dennis just fills his lungs with smoke as I fill the air with earnest pleas. Once every trace of smoke is let out, he looks at me, and this is the only thing he says that day. I will teach him everything I know. And so, Anthony becomes a mechanic. He would give me periodic updates. I learned how to do a lube job today. I fixed a carburetor all by myself. He hands me a photograph one day. There is Anthony with a broad smile, face smudged with axle grease, work shirt, with Anthony embroidered proudly on his chest. No question, to look at this face is to know that its owner is a transformed man. But standing next to him in the picture, with an arm around Anthony and a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, is Dennis an equally changed human being. And all because Dennis one day pulled down the walls and let the world in. Kind of get out of his cramped world. And there was this true kinship that evolved. I think we each know about this, about the power of relatedness, that if... um, If we were at the end of our life and we look back and we really wanted to say what matters, we would remember different intervals where in some way we held hands with someone, on some level. We would remember the intervals where in some way we just gave of ourselves and found in that generosity how much was given back. Our moments when we 
opened ourselves and took a chance to be vulnerable and found that somebody could really hold us. We would remember the moments of belonging because we trust more who we are in those moments than any other. We like who we are. Why? We're more who we really are. We're more whole. When there's a dark night, okay, when we're suffering, it's because we don't feel belonging. Okay, we feel cut off. And then what happens is all we can see is of ourself is this cut off ego self. Like who we are is this small, tight, afraid, deficient ego self. And at those times when we look around, all we can see is the mask and defenses of others. I mean, isn't it true that when we're feeling alone and deficient, we look around and we see others' egos and personalities in in living daylight, but what don't we see? You know, we don't see the spirit that's there. So the second pathway of um, coming home is this pathway of turning towards relatedness of looking to see the goodness in others, of, of opening ourselves, taking a chance to be, to be real. What we find is in the moments that we, that we reach out and the moments that we see what's good, when we see that secret beauty, it actually brings it out. In a, a story I heard a few, some years ago, one woman was in a grocery store in California and and as they, she went along the aisle, she was, became aware of uh, this mother with a small boy moving in the opposite direction. And they kept meeting head on at the end of every aisle. So the woman barely noticed because she was, that they were meeting these people because she was so furious at this little boy. The woman, this is the woman and child that she was seeing. This mother was so furious at her boy because the little kid kept trying to pull things off all the shelves as little kids do it. And so the mom kept becoming more and more frustrated and she started to yell at the child and several aisles later progressed to shaking him by the arm. So this is when this woman uh, that's writing this spoke up. She said, a wonderful mother of three and founder of a progressive school, she had probably never once in her life treated any child so harshly that she's writing about the woman that she was with. I expected my friend would give this woman a solid mother-to-mother talk about controlling herself and about the effect this behavior has on a child. Braced for a confrontation, I felt a spike in my already elevated adrenaline. Instead, my friend said to this other mother, what a beautiful little boy. How old is he? The woman answered cautiously, he's three. My friend went on to comment about how curious he seemed and how her own three children were just like him in the grocery store, pulling things off shelves, so interested in all the wonderful colors and packages. He seemed so bright and intelligent, my friend said. The woman had her boy in her arms by now, and a shy smile came upon her face. Gently brushing his hair out of his eyes, she said, Yes, he's very smart and curious, but sometimes he wears me out. My friend responded sympathetically, Yes, they can do that. They're so full of energy. As we walked away, I heard the mother speaking more kindly to the boy about getting home and cooking his dinner. We'll have your favorite, macaroni and cheese, she told him. So this is a story from Catherine Ingram's book, and I just reflect on it and think that, you know, we are not aware of how 
our thoughts and our actions affect each other. That every day there are countless moments when if we paused, we could sense that it would be possible with somebody else to in some way mirror their goodness, some way let them know that we care, some way offer a part of ourselves, and in those moments find more belonging. Or it may be that in those mom- in other moments we seek out those that can mirror us. We reach out for a hand. Or it may be that in our meditation, that's what we do. So what we're exploring tonight really is that there's no surprise we would get caught in self-doubt. Most everyone I know has at least phases where they're aware of really not trusting themselves. Just as my rabbi friend found that the sense of not being at home with himself, with God, that happens to everyone. Sometimes it's a dark night and sometimes it's just a feeling of doubt. And there's actually an intelligence in doubt. Doubt's message is, oh, I'm not at home. I'm identified with a smaller self than the wholeness of what I am. Doubt has an intelligence. The invitation when we feel that, when we get caught in doubt, is to ask the same questions my rabbi friend asked, which is, what's between me and being at home right now? How can I be more at home right now? Sometimes our way home will be, we'll just be with the animal-headed goddesses that are there. We'll be with the pain, the fear, the doubt. Other times we'll reach out for love. Either way, we start finding who we really are, which is an experience of awareness and love that we know as home. So I'd like to close with a brief meditation, if you will. This is a very brief reflection on coming home to our true belonging, coming home to wholeness. And we begin with the simplicity of just feeling our breath. Just belong to your breath. Relax with your breath. Let your breath collect you. Let your breath help you find that current that is really the riverbanks, the current that your life flows in, this here-ness, this aliveness. And you might sense, what does it mean to belong to this aliveness right here? How can I be more at home in this moment's aliveness? And then just let go. Feel the aliveness as it plays at the heart 
perhaps there's a mood or emotion and sense, how can I belong to this? If there's a difficulty or feels like you're encountering the goddesses, how can I be with this? How can I let be? We belong to our bodies, aliveness, and we belong to our hearts. We sense this whole field of aliveness that we belong to. We sense each other, the beings in this room, the beings in our life. I invite you to bring to mind one person that's easy to feel your connection with right now. Imagine and feel that person right here. Might imagine that person looking at you with eyes of total acceptance and understanding and care. Feel transparent to that person and received beautifully. And sense as you behold this person, their beauty and goodness, the aliveness, the humor, the intelligence, the spirit that shines through. So you sense that who's looking through your eyes is looking back at you through their eyes. And you sense this field of loving presence that's really your oneness. And then let go and belong to that. Sensing the awareness that's aware of all of this. Just that openness and wakefulness and luminosity. And then just let go and belong. Let go and belong to that. close with the words of Rumi who writes about this kind of doubt that we've been talking about tonight. He says, you were inside my hand. I kept reaching around for something. I was inside your hand but I kept asking questions of those who know very little. I must have been incredibly simple or drunk or insane to sneak into my own house and steal money to climb over the fence and take my own vegetables. But no more. I've gotten free of that ignorant fist that was pinching and twisting my secret self. The universe and the light of the stars come through me. I am the crescent moon put up over the gate 
to the festival. The universe and the light of the stars come through me. I am the crescent moon put up over the gate to the festival. The talk you just listened to has been freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation, learn more about my schedule, or about programs offered by the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, please visit either my website, which is tarabrock.com, or IMCW's site, which is imcw.org. Thank you very much.